You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it is America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist going solo this week on a Memorial Day weekend special. We've got some rerun highlights for you on the show this week. The rest of the team hanging out. We're going to kick it off with a road trip to Knoxville, Tennessee. We're going to reach into the listener mailbag and we're going to replay one of our favorite interviews of all time with Ryan Speedo Green. A little bit of sports talk before we get into it. To me, Memorial Day weekend is defined by the Indianapolis 500, which is the motor race which takes place in Indianapolis, Indiana. It's called the greatest spectacle in motor racing, and it truly is. It's just one of the races on the IndyCar circuit. But this is the big one. It takes place in what is affectionately known as the Brickyard in Indianapolis, There is so much pageantry. There is aircraft flyovers, and there is music galore. The singing of Back Home Again in Indiana, the national anthem. And this year, a rendition of God Bless America, sung by soprano Angela Brown. Angela, of course, you will have seen her as Aida at the Met, and she also went to the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music, so kind of a hometown heroine, and she absolutely knocked God Bless America out of the park. I encourage you to go to our website. You can find a link to that and check out the amazing checkered flag-inspired dress that she is wearing. Let's talk some opera. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer. Our enthusiastic, yet humble, salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. The OBS Hall of Fame, the hallowed halls are open yet again. This time we turn to Knoxville, Tennessee for our inductees. No, Matt Cummings on the show again this week. Oliver Weston and Ashley, who's it going to be? So just a little bit of inside baseball for all of you listeners. Um, I used to do a show. I still do a show uh, called Opera Now, where I spent so much time researching and listening to recordings and writing long things and presenting my ideas over the course of weeks on like one opera. I would spend like three weeks on it. And each segment was supposed to be like 20 minutes, ended up being like an hour. So uh, that p- point of my part of my podcasting career, I think, has come to an end. I feel like <laughs> our very own Matt Cummings has taken the crown from me, taken the tiara, so to speak, <laughs> of being like the, um, I don't know, the historian on on opera. And I was just thinking we're in summer mode and there's not a lot of news and it's been such a weird year and we can't really talk about performances that much. So why not take the opportunity to talk about a piece that singers, uh, just American singers, just love so much. And it's a piece that is adjacent to opera because really only opera singers sing it. 
But it's one of those things that we, when we're in training, we're exposed to it and we hear it and we collectively think this thing we're going to listen to today that we're inducting to the Hall of Fame is so beautiful and so American and so uh, nostalgic. And even if you are not like a white little boy who grew up in Knoxville, (laughs) somehow... Yeah, somehow this piece um, just makes you feel nostalgic. And I'm going to let Ashley dive into why that is and how that works with this piece. But it's called Knoxville Summer of... Oh, my God. Summer of what? 1915. 1915. There it is. There it is. By Samuel Barber. It's based on a setting of a text by James Agee. Agee. Agee, thank you. Uh, and it was written in 1947 <laughs> and premiered by the great Eleanor Staber with the Boston Symphony. Um, the text is the uh, opening of a larger uh, prose poem called A Death in the Family, which mm-hmm. posthumously won the Pulitzer for James Agee. Um, and it's from the perspective of a little boy uh, recalling his childhood in 1915. Uh, and Apparently, it was written uh, as sort of a, a memory of James Agee's uh, father who died when when he was a little boy, like six years old. And the coincidences are, or the one main coincidence is that when Barber was setting this to music, his father was also very sick and I think died shortly afterwards. So mm-hmm. he was also experiencing uh, some, you know, family longings and, uh, you know, paternal um you know, feelings like of, of loss. So um, there's, there, there are those two histories or or anecdotes that coincide with each other. I think there's a third one. I forget who I, or what, what, what either maybe was a conductor or a singer who is part of the premiere also is having like some father issues. So uh, there's many things that, that went into the creation of this piece and where you just automatically feel there is something so sad about this piece but also so beautiful and uh yeah i we're gonna get to some music right away but you know barber was a big fan of ag and uh he also set a a song um sure on the shining night which is one of our favorite songs that we like to sing um (laughs) and if you you know look at barber's setting of this you listen to it he really does create this idyllic quality in the music and it's very rhapsody like and it doesn't really feel like it has a lot of structure it just feels like uh what do you call that thoughts when you're stream of consciousness stream stream of consciousness yes 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 yeah (laughs) and (laughs) the stream of your consciousness went right (laughs) right around that word (laughs) and you know when we think of opera we think of something that has point a and a point b and a point c you know you're going somewhere but this piece just sort of like is stuck in a moment and there's lots of like nostalgia and free association and it feels somewhat spontaneous um once again from the point for perspective of a small white boy <laughs> 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 and um i'm gonna let ashley take over here but we're gonna hear a little clip right now uh this is just like the principal theme um that once you hear this theme and then you realize oh it's used as like a framing device so here is our first clip And the stand the 
that we've just heard is from the second most popular slash famous uh, set of recordings of Barber's Knoxville, which is from Leontine Price. So, okay, that opening theme that you hear, it's this hypnotic lilt. It establishes why we love this piece and it keeps coming back to tell us where we are. So Leontine has, for the record, a beautiful studio recording that we're going to hear a little bit from uh, that was done in 1968 with New Philharmonia and Shippers. But for my money, my favorite recording of Leontine is what we just heard. It's a 1959 recording, same group, Carnegie Hall, think it's a bootleg, uh, in the studio recording, which is, for the record, very beautiful. She, in the studio recording of Leontine, she, like, diminutizes her voice, possibly as, like, a dramatic uh, choice because she's portraying a little boy. But, you know, so from a dramatic tip, I get that. But this live one at Carnegie Hall, she sounds more like Leontine. It's much more of that, like, full meat and potatoes steak dinner <laughs> that we're used to hearing from her. Uh, but yeah, so that theme, you're going to hear it a lot in this piece. It, uh, it it gets us started and it keeps coming back. Um, I, I love this piece. I know lots of singers do, but I'm going to go ahead and stake a little extra bit of a claim here. I This is absolutely one of my favorites. I call it a hug. It's just a vocal musical <laughs> hug. I love to sing it. I've been doing this piece in various iterations for two decades. I hope to sing it for at least two more decades. My wish for every musician is to get a chance to be part of this performance one time and for every opera lover to get to experience this live one time. It is canonical it's beautiful it is again it's just it's just a big hug uh speaking of 20 years ago uh i uh i used this piece as a part of my graduate research i i've written <laughs> a number of papers on it i have scoured recordings left right and center i've really dug into the poetry pretty hard i'm officially like a sucker for barber in general like i love his oh stuff. absolutely totally but this one hits me like especially hard. The way that the vignettes that you get in this are set both in the text and in the music. It, there, there are a lot of things that throw back to like memories of my own childhood, even though I was clearly not a little white boy in the summer of 1950. <laughs> um, there's just things that come back to me. Um, but for me, the place that you got to start is with the text. It all starts with that AG text. Barbara's beautiful. No question. I could talk about that all day long. But the marriage of his creation with these words in particular, that's what makes this so incredibly magical. That tableau of that like small town America, specifically in the South, it well, guess what? It resonates with me pretty deeply because um, I had that moment as well. Um, 
And, you know, it's so funny because it's such a beautiful vignette, but it can also come off as something that's a cliche that we scoff at, but there's something beautiful and nostalgic and we keep coming back to it. The phrases of, you know, the rough, wet grass of the backyard, the hueless amber of early summer evenings, the the smells of vanilla, strawberry, pasteboard, starched milk. Mm. Those things sound so weird, but at the same time, when you hear them, there's something beautiful and you can almost immediately relate to it. I don't even know what pasteboard is, but I'm like, yes, James, I'm with you. This sounds great. Um, it's so simple. It is so, however, enduring. I feel like these words jump off the page differently to me every time I read it and every time I interpret this piece in performance, I honestly, I don't think I've ever sung it the same way twice because there's so much in there and there's so much to play with and there's so much to do with it. Um, you know, we'll get back into themes and forms and whether or not this has any. Um, but for me, the thing that gets to me is just how simply and how beautifully we are told of this, you know, boy in his childhood and how much he loves all of these things around him, how this is such a beautiful, fond memory for him. It, it's clear to me, at least, that he's really proud of this moment from which he comes. Uh, but in this, what I call a gorgeously firm move, uh, he lets us know that, that while it's where he's from, it's not who he is. Because uh, I think that's one of the things when you look back wistfully on on a different time in your life, I think one of the really emotionally intelligent and frankly defiant things to do is to frame it in who you were then versus who you are now. And he does say, I will not, there are these memories will not, not now, not ever, you know, dictate who he has become. They will never tell me who I am. And again, this is something that I resonate with very deeply uh, because, you know, growing up in the South, there are a lot of things that can be expected of you when you grow up in that type of an environment. And if mm. you move away from those things, there's there's often a conflict internally with, you know, how do you resolve the person you are now versus the person you were then? And he does that so beautifully, but he sneaks it in at the very last second. He spends 20 minutes painting this like gorgeous picture of like days gone by. And then he's like, but that's not going to fully inform you as to who I am because I'm different now. Uh, but anyway, that's just a little bit of a waxing poetic for me on this vocal hug. <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, and so, so, yeah, I believe, go ahead, go ahead, Oliver. No, so we, um, this is a piece that, um, many singers have recorded it. Some really fantastic singers have recorded it. And we heard the A theme. And if we're sort of dividing this piece up into A, B, C, let's say A, D, and then back to A again, <laughs> the four things we can really, really listen to are A, B, C, and D. So let's hear our B, uh, beginning with the line, uh, a streetcar racing. Uh, and here is uh, the woman who gave the premiere of this piece, the great Eleanor Stieber, uh, with the Dumbarton Oaks Festival Orchestra, conducted by William Strickland.
My pick uh, for who I, I think does the ideal sort of uh, version of this piece to me is the, uh, the 1989 studio recording uh, uh, sung by Don Upshaw, who is, who, who is in her element in this one, uh, which that's with the Orchestra of St. Luke's conducted by David Zinman. And honestly, I can't think of a better piece for her voice and like artistic like vibe yes. than this one. Um, I, I would say like if, if we were inducting Don Upshaw into the Hall of Fame separately, sh- this piece would also be the recording. And who knows? We might, we might do that at some point. Um, this is just a, it's just such a great, a great piece because she really thinks about every line she's uh she's always about you know the clarity of the text finding the psychological sort of line throughout and really following which is what makes this piece so interesting to me because the original poem was written very quickly um as an experiment exactly an experiment in sort of like you know free form poetry and barber took the sort of the same thing obviously it took him a little bit longer um but he did still did it in a fairly short time period um, and so there are these like moments where you have like this really long line. You think you, you understand where it's going. And then there's like this really weird shift. All of a sudden the rhythm changes. The, the, the quality of the sound is different and not in like a logical way. Um, that would, that would arise out of, you know, really formal sort of classical composition, which is what makes it so interesting to me. Um, but the thing is, in order to sell that, you need someone who is going to really, really go with you for every turn of the piece. We, we, we keep saying that, um, this is from the perspective of a child, which it is, but also it's a little bit ambiguous. It's hard to tell which moments are the child seeing something, experiencing something through naivete, and how much is the adult remembering when they were a child, finding that sort of uh, exact same sort of, uh, find trying to find that feeling again and not quite succeeding. And it melds into it. It really does uh, feel like, you know, you're, you're at twilight, you're, you've been told to go to bed by your parents. And you're sort of slipping away, but you're not there yet. You have like a, a thought, a thought, a thought, a thought. And it's, and Upshaw is just really, really up for the challenge on that one. Uh, she has like the innocence down. She has that, that really great Upshaw quality where she like, where everything sounds really bubbly and light, but at the same time, and American. That's and the very American. American. Yeah. The most American voice. Um, she's maybe not the most dramatic choice for the role compared to like a Leontine Price, um, but she, but the, but capturing that innocence of the child in the sleepy town, which I've been to a number of times. I love Knoxville. Very it's different nowadays from what I'm told by all my friends from 1915, Oliver. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, well, George has got his 1915 jacket on. Too. 
That's right. He is well on his way to the Piccadilly as we speak. <laughs> But the the thing that what that strikes me when you listen to Upshaw singing, because you know I'm from the South too, um, I'm feeling nostalgic right here as we record, record because we're in the middle of a tornado watch right now, which is just my entire childhood. Um, but it is very much uh, it really captures that atmosphere around around what's going on. There's there's this there's never uh, there's never a sense that even when it's the the older man looking back on his childhood that there's that there's like a separation. Like he still feels that atmosphere. He still knows it. I went back home uh, recently for the first time in like six years. And I felt the exact same feelings that I feel when I hear this piece, uh, especially with Don Upshaw. Uh, and she's absolutely in control of the flow of thoughts, but she never like supersedes that flow. You know, if, if that makes any sense. Um, it's a great performance. Uh, it makes you feel like the piece was written for her. Let's hear a little bit. I believe this is from the C section uh, where she sings about now is the night. One blue dew my father has drained, has coiled the hose low the length of the lawns, a frailing of fire who breathes parents on porches, et cetera, et cetera. Just all these great Southern images um, with some some foreboding in there, but something really, really gorgeous, too. So this leads us to what I guess you can call is the climax of the piece. This place doesn't really have a climax. It's just a bunch of little vignettes. Um, but if there is an emotional climax of this piece, it's this part here. And I can't even like read the text because it's just so just the love of your family. And this yeah. little boy says, there they are on the porch. My mom, my dad, my uncle, my aunt. And, you know, he says, my, you know, my uncle, he's a good guy. You know, my mother, she's a good woman. My father, he's good to me, you know. Oh, <laughs> oh it's too much. Yeah. So it's, Oliver, I'm going to take over. And then when I start to burst into tears, you can just come back. Um, but yeah, basically it's like, as much as that beautiful A section of like, you know, that ba-da-da, ba-da-da. It's almost, it's a, it's like a lilting floating. Um, this next 
you know, section that we're talking about, which, you know, some people call it like the D section. Um, it's, if there, you know, if we were in an opera, we've had the overture, the curtain rises, and there's this like really firm, you know, set of music and expedition while there's some sort of action before the opening aria. That's this section that bum, 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 ba, da, ba. It's, it's less flowy. It's less wilty. It's much more matter of fact. It's Copeland-esque in the way that it kind of goes along, both in chord structure and in the melody that comes from the orchestra and then eventually from the singer. Uh, and so it's, you know, truth be told, as much as I love that A section, this is secretly like the one that gets me the most <laughs> because of all of the things that Oliver just mentioned, that insanely beautiful text that just talks of the love of family, but also the fact that it is a little more like matter of fact, uh, you know, the duple meter instead of something that's a little bit more triple like what we find in the main theme. Um, and I loved your point, Weston, about feeling like you know, a voice like Upshaw's, while it's so different from a Staber, while it's so different from a Price, it also, this piece feels like it was made for her. And I think that's one of the beautiful and borderline genius things about this piece is that there are a number of voices that can sing this. As long as mm. you get somebody that can, at their height, make it over an orchestra, you can do this piece. So you hear various weights of voices that will take this on. You hear big honking, huge sopranos who vocally weigh a thousand pounds. And then you have somebody who's a little bit lighter and cleaner in their attack and approach like an Upshaw. And they're both beautiful. They're both things that sound like they're made for that singer. And while this is usually done by a soprano, sometimes you will hear it done by a tenor, which leads me to the next clip that I want to tell you about, which is one from Mr. Russell Thomas. Friend of the show. Yeah. Friend of the show, Russell Thomas. So yeah, so there are in fact tenors that that do this, um, but it's really fantastic. This is a this is a recital he did about six years ago, uh, the Rosenblatt recital in London. It's him and I'm gonna guess Simon Lepper uh, is how I pronounce this gentleman's name on piano. So it it sounds completely different. It is, however, equally gorgeous. I encourage people to not sleep on tenor recordings of this piece. Um, most of the time, you're not going to hear them with orchestra. You're going to hear them with piano. But it gives the singer a chance to be a little more broad in their brushstrokes when they're singing. Because you can't do the little light, tiny, wilty stuff when you're trying to overcome and overpower an orchestra. When it's just you and a piano, you can add in a lot more colors and textures and different dynamics to really get into the telling of the story. So while it sounds really different and not what we would think of as like a traditional Knoxville sound. It's absolutely stunning and I encourage you to check out the rest of this recording after we give you a lovely little taste of it right now. On the rough wet grass of the backyard My father and mother have spread quilts We all lie there My mother, my father, my young, my aunt and I too am lying there. We are not talking much, and the talk is quiet of nothing in particular. Of nothing at all in particular. Of nothing at all. The stars are And they seem very near 
Russell Thomas with pianist, we assume Simon Leper from one of the Rosenblatt recitals, singing that section, which I can't listen to right now, um, but it is too much. Once again, we're talking about Barber's Knoxville Summer of 1915, a 15-ish minute rhapsody for voice and orchestra. Relatively short, but it packs in so much. You got so, so many so places. Much. Yeah, it's not opera. Uh, but we are, yes, it is. Yes, we are, it's operatic. <laughs> Basically. Uh, but we you know we just experienced an Olympics that now treats skateboarders and whatnot. We have rhythmic gymnastics and dressage and all these things. So this is sort of like our weird, you know, corner of what we consider to be, you know, it's classical vocal music. Yeah. <laughs> is, it, is Knoxville summer of 1915 the dressage of opera? <laughs> If we can get a horse to dance, anyway, I'm on board. <laughs> it's a piece that if, if it's the first time you're hearing it, please go online and look at the text and just sit down and listen to a recording of it start to finish. And I promise you, you will come back to it again and again. Samuel Barber is probably my favorite uh, American composer because there's, there's something so genuine uh, about his writing. I, I think a lot of the sort of you know, mid-century American composers who were, you know, like, like your Copelands and such. And uh, they they feel sometimes disingenuous to me at times, a little bit overly kitschy. Um, but Barber never feels that way. Whenever he has a, a, a little naive American moment moments, and this piece is full of them, it feels absolutely real, absolutely earned. And it's just an extraordinary piece. And lastly, Ashley Hardgrave. It is, it's a major piece in the canon, and if you've never heard it start to finish, uh, once you do, you'll know why. Uh, it is, you know, we're currently, you know, in early August. We are in, you know, the last month, the waning weeks of summer in what has been a really, really challenging time. And I want to spread joy and beauty. And so my hope for you, however you are, wherever you're listening, I want you to Find out what time sunsets wherever you are. And I want you to set aside the time right before that sunset. And I want you to sit on a porch or a balcony or look out a window where you can see that beautiful, like, hueless amber early evening. And then I want you to put on a recording of Knoxville, summer 1915. And I want you to watch that sky and I want you to listen. And I think that that will bring you a beauty and a joy that we all deserve. And one of the recordings that you can do that with, besides the early Leontine that I mentioned, uh, is the one that we're going to close this out with, which is going to be the 1968 uh, studio recording with the new Phil Harmonia Orchestra.
I ain't got something to say? Then yeah, all right, you can say something. This is listener mailbag. Coming into the present for a moment, PJ and friend Donald were at the Mets production of Flying Dutchman. Here's what they had to say. Der Fliegende Hollander. Der Fliegender. Der Fliegender Hollander. Hollander. The Flying Dutchman. Der Fliegender Hollander. Fliegender. Fliegende. Fliegende. Der Fliegende Hollander. Hollander. Uh, Or in French, Le Vaisseau Fantôme. Okay. We're seeing the Flying Dutchman, everybody. This is PJ. We're out front. Cut it out. Donald, I'm I'm recording. This is important. This is PJ, very befuddled, here at the Flying Dutchman, here at the Metropolitan Opera. Donald, just tell us about this. I I don't know what to say. Uh, It was one of Wagner's earliest operas. I think it's his third opera. Uh, It's actually my personal favorite. It starts out with an absolutely magnificent overture. Uh, Sometimes it's done in three acts, sometimes it's done in one act, like we're going to have tonight, which means if you haven't been to the bathroom beforehand, time to go. Oh my God, I got to go. I'll I'll be right back. Go ahead, keep going. It's about the old legend of the Flying Dutchman, Philip van der Decken, who cursed God, and uh, he was condemned to roam the seas, and every seven years he comes ashore to find a bride, somebody who will follow him forever and be faithful to him. He comes ashore in Norway and he finds a young young girl, Senta, who's the daughter of Dalant, who's a ship captain he meets. Senta, who fantasized about him for years, finally sees him, meets him. They fall in love and her former boyfriend, Eric, comes looking for her, finds her, and the Dutchman finds them together, even though she's telling oh, Eric to no. take a hike. Oh, and no. he's decided that the spell is broken. And he uh, takes his crew and his, his phantom ship and he heads out to sea again and she goes on top of the cliff and she basically shrieks out a couple of high, high B naturals and jumps off the cliff. The music in the end is supposed to be their apotheosis, they're rising up to heaven. So he takes his ball and goes home, basically. Goes home. If we're talking about opera and the opera box score, right. the sports analogy, he's not going to play. He's right. going home. He's not playing. Just like that. Yeah. Hey, um, Donald, uh, two more things before we're done. One is, are there any voices that you're excited to hear tonight? Yes. Uh, Thomas Konetsny, who's the uh, Dutchman. It's one of the most difficult roles. It's for a Helden baritone. It's very similar in, in, uh, in, in where it lays with Wotan in, in the ring cycle. And uh, Elsa van der Hever, a uh, uh, South African soprano, dramatic soprano, is doing her first center. And I love her. She's wonderful. This is why we have Donald here, everybody, because he knows what he's talking about. Donald, one more thing. What? There's a devilishly handsome gentleman standing right over there. Stephen Labrie. Stephen, he walked winners. right up to you and said, Donald, and you, there was an embrace. You're fancy. You know these people. No, actually, I walked up to him. Oh, you walked up to him. <laughs> okay. But Stephen Labrie is here. He's a wonderful yeah. singer from yeah. uh, Julio Gari, a winner, He was right? one of our winners in yeah. uh, 2013, and he's been traveling with Il Divo. He's the new member of Il Divo, and they're traveling all over the world. And uh, he's having a fabulous success. It's PJ. It's Donald. It's the Opera Box Score Report <laughs> from the Metropolitan Opera. Love you all. See you again soon. Bye. And finally, back into the OBS archives. Last summer, Oliver went on his annual pilgrimage to Santa Fe. More on that in a future episode where he was able to meet up with bass baritone Ryan Speedo Green, who at that time was recovering from COVID. 
Here's a rerun of their interview from last summer. In 2016, the biography of Ryan Speedo Green entitled Sing for Your Life was published. It details the American bass baritone's remarkable journey from his rough childhood to the world's stages as an opera singer. A few years later, he was introduced to the world with his 60 Minutes profile, with Met and HD performances soon to follow. Now, it's safe to say we are living in the high season of Speedo, with the bass baritone set to star in the next Terence Blanchard opera, Champion, in 2023. Oliver sat down with Speedo to talk about this next chapter of his life, as well as making his debut at Santa Fe Opera on the heels of recovering from COVID. But first, here is Speedo in Beethoven's Ninth, recorded last year with the Vienna Symphony. Santa Fe, and last night I saw The Barber of Seville, which so far has been the best thing I've seen this season. I know that I still have two more operas to go, but this Barber of Seville was actually hilarious. And yes, it's a funny opera, but there are lots of moments in Barber's where you're like, oh, okay, this probably was funny like 200 years ago, but it's not funny anymore. This show tries to cram in as many jokes as possible, and it really keeps you engaged. Even if you don't like the joke, at least you know that somebody's trying to go for a joke. So first of all, welcome Ryan Speedo Green. Should we just call you Speedo? Yes, call me okay? Speedo. All my friends call me Speedo. <laughs> okay. Um, so we met when you made your recital debut uh, at Ravinia with Adam Nielsen, mm -hmm. and that was around the time when your book had come out, it was sort of like a recital tour, book tour at the same time. And, uh, you know, the 60 Minutes thing came out. We're going to talk about that. But for now, let's just talk a little bit about Santa Fe. So I was lucky to catch your actual house debut, yes. which was which was delayed. Why was it delayed? It was delayed because I had my second bout with COVID here in Santa uh, Fe. Man, that must really suck. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the irony is like I, I would have had my debut in December for a gala uh, last December for Santa Fe, but the, I landed in Santa Fe and after spending four months in New York uh, doing like 35 performances. Mm. <laughs> and, I, and the second day I arrived in Santa Fe, I, I, I contracted COVID. And so I was on quarantine for 10 days. So I missed my debut. And then I was excited for coming here to do uh, um, starting performances in the second run of um, Barbara Seville here and then this pr amazing production and I took my whole family this time and uh, we arrived uh, and in the 48 hours after I arrived my son and my wife contracted COVID and then my mother-in-law the day after and then me two days later so I ended up being in quarantine for like 15 days. 
Oh man. Well, we have to put a bit to put a pin in your wife and your son and your your, your mother-in-law or your mother? My mother-in-law, yeah. My mother-in-law, okay. so, but yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. We will talk about that in a moment, but um let's just get back to Don Basilio. Um, you are in this production. Oh, you have to remind me who the stage director is. I should have known this. Before. No, no, it, 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 it's 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 uh, 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 a and I will actually rem- I ended up working with the assistant stage manager and stage director okay. because I missed the original uh, uh, mounting of the production, okay. and so I didn't actually meet the the original director. So I okay. cannot. Yeah. Okay, but should we name this person? Should I yes, we should. we should. We okay, should. Let, let me look up the. Because uh, I worked, I worked with Greg Gregory, who was his assistant stage manager. Okay. So, so I didn't actually meet the director face to face. I worked okay. with his well, assistant. Well, it's hilarious, and uh, it's sort of a mixture of uh, you know 18th century uh, attire. And um, there's iPhones, and there's yoga <laughs> mats, and there it's it's just sort of all over the place uh genre or um anachronistically in the era but it totally works so it's steven steven barlow okay steven barlow so congratulations steven barlow and you said the assistant was greg gregory yeah so gregory's the one who worked with me for for the for one day before i my entire family uh, contracted COVID. okay <laughs> so. and then shout out to uh nicholas newton who did two performances in your stuff? yes Yes, yeah. he did. Yeah, and he, uh, he was amazing. I got to meet him. Uh, he did the uh, the performances in the beginning, and then he ended up uh, doing the two that I missed. And shouldn't we, you know, in this day and era, feel so fortunate that we have another black bass baritone uh, ready to go? This is and true. It wasn't like yeah, uh, and I know this maybe not even part of the concept for this show, but I'm so glad that um, he was available because he's also a great singer and on top of being black, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and I think there's what, what I really, I mean, for me, what I really love looking at the Santa Fe uh, season and the rosters, how many singers represented both Asian American, African American, Hispanic uh, uh, American, and just, you know, the, first of all, the the nationalities that are here. And I think that's exciting for me as a singer to come to a place like Santa Fe and still feel like I'm, this is a world, uh, like the world is here. Not yeah. only the opera world, but the actual world is here. Right. Well, so you're doing a comic role and... Um since you know your ascent uh, into you know this new level of uh, notoriety as a, a singer uh, you used to do you used to sing Osmin do you still sing Osmin so so Osmin was my uh, uh, actually my last and final bass role so I I had a I had a stint where I was like man I have a low D I should show people yeah <laughs> and but uh, since then I've my voice has moved up and I'm I'm uh, I'm actually like a bass baritone high bass baritone Okay, which yeah. means that you sing a lot of gloomy and angry kings. Yes, you know? uh, kings, bad guys. You know, I, I never get the girl, but maybe I'll be in the way of the tenor getting the girl. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 been ama- it's been actually pretty awesome. Uh, I started off with mostly comedy um, in the beginning of my career, and then um, as uh, I discovered my voice and and using you know my my stage presence not only to make people laugh and and smile but also to instill fear and 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 angst and uh uh you know a- the anti-heroic type of uh, personalities that i presented and also drunks apparently i'm really good at representing drunks even though i don't drink very yeah. very much <laughs> no but i mean like you are a very um formidable stage presence yeah but but in this um barber seville you're sort of fey and silly <laughs> And uh, I don't know, it was like, it was really fun to see you be so 
I don't know, loose and, uh, you know, just easy, easy on stage, you know, and I'll hilarious, you know. I, I will tell you, like, I mean, this this cast is top notch. And I've, I've, done, I've been, I've had the pleasure of doing Barber in a, in a bunch of different places, both in Europe and in America. And it, it's it's one of those shows that if you have the right cast, it's it's almost impossible not to make something funny happen. And, when, and I, I only got to rehearse with the cast once before uh, opening night tonight. And even in our on our small rehearsal that I had, the the energy like everybody fed off me. I had, I had things to add to the to the character that um, the person who sang it before me didn't, and yeah. and he had stuff that he put on him himself. So it was like it was yeah. almost a different performance, you know, uh, that yeah. I gave with the cast. Yeah, I don't know like how Nick was because I didn't see it, but just yeah. like when you're when you're wearing headphones, just like this little tilt you have in your <laughs> in your neck just to show that you're listening is just so. Just like little details like that are just so enjoyable. No, I even I even remember like when uh when um we were we were talking uh me and me and the 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 Bartolo, uh you know Kevin and Kevin he, Burdett, who is Kevin, ridiculous. In this I mean, show. I, I, I sort of like he's I, I first of all I didn't know a human being could be a, a bass baritone slash baritone could be as flexible as he is both physically and vocally on stage. Yeah. The things he does on stage are something you would see in a vaudeville act, yeah. and it's just like the he, he's he's literally that comical in real life like he, mm. he he walked into a room and somehow you end up laughing yeah no it was it, it, i was cracking up i'm like i was literally guffawing and i think the people around me were like okay it was funny but it wasn't that funny <laughs> no <laughs> well, it was it was a good time it was a really good time and and i think for me with this kind of show you know uh you, you could do it so much at, at, at some point, especially like, you know, the, the, the people who sing these kind of roles sing them a lot because it is a very specific kind of voice and character to sing these roles. It can be, become a bit monotonous. And it's, it's, it does it's everything to do with the cast and the direction to bring the most out of these characters and the people singing them. And I think it's, it's a really uh, a testament to the director and the production and the, and the, and this, the, the whole uh, ensemble to bring this show together that it went so well. Like people told me this is like, I think it's like the sixth or seventh performance of it. And even then, like some of the people in the audience had seen it multiple times and they were still laughing. <laughs> and that shows you how great of a production this is. Well, we're here to talk about you, even though we, I could talk about this Barbara Steele some more. Um, like I said, we met when your book had just come out and you were singing a recital uh, with Adam Nielsen. And I think a lot of people saw this piece you did for 60 Minutes, yeah. where you were sort of introduced to the world and not a lot of opera singers get that opportunity to like have, you know, their story, you know, told. This was even before you were who you are now, you know? So I feel like a lot of people feel like they know you, uh, even though they haven't even heard you sing yet, you know? They just know you because of your story that's out there. And now, yeah, but go ahead. I'll let you comment, but then we'll talk about like no, where I mean, you are it, now. It, it's it's uh it's again. I know how uh, great of an opportunity and how lucky I am to have something something like that happen to me so early in my career. At the same time, it was a huge motivator for me because all the people who wrote to me telling me how much my story meant to them, especially educators, because you know as as much as I'm an opera singer and my story is about how opera changed my life and affected me, my story is really about educators and how how much educators from the from the very beginning of child enters elementary school which literally is my story to the to the time they enter music school and they want to learn this art form that is 400 plus years old and they want to be a part of it and, and its grandioseness and its you know uh its history and how it, it's special the educate how important educators are to 
transitioning children, teenagers, and adults into being not only opera stars and opera fans, but just to be able to feel like they're welcome into this art form. And I think uh, it's been a huge motivator for me as a musician, as a man, as a, as a person whose story has been told in, in such a way to not let, you know, to work strive to, be, to, to live up to people's expectations and, and dreams of who I could become. And I feel so, so, so uh, gratified that so many people have been following my career since that 60 Minutes uh, um, interview and the book and have been able to see me blossom from a, a young artist to now a full-fledged uh, soloist performer. You're the marquee star and you have uh, a production being mounted for you. I mean, I guess, I don't know, is Solomon Howard like on, the, uh, on another cast of that? No, no. So it, no, it's 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 me, and and uh, uh, it's it's only me. Um, okay. It's and it's called Champion, and so the 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 show is going to be me and Eric Owens, one of my mentors. Okay. So and he's playing the old version. So I'm playing young Emil, and mm -hmm. and and Eric Owens is playing old Emil, and it's it's actually not only a story of, of a boxing story, but it's 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 a story about uh, accepting one's sexuality. Like this mm -hmm. is a this is a a, a man who. You know, I mean, I could talk to you hours about it, but the, the general basis of a man who, uh, a, a boxer who killed a man in the ring and the world forgave him. But the moment that he was found out that he was, that he was gay, the world couldn't forgive him for being gay. So they forgave him for killing a man, but they forgive for love, they couldn't forgive him for loving a man. And, and, it, and it's like an amazing story of, of, of self-acceptance, of forgiveness, uh, and, you know, of the American dream. And I think I'm, I feel sort of sometimes looking at this character, you know, as an ally and as a person who literally is living in the epitome of the American dream, what America could be at its best, but also seeing America, what it can be at its worst. And it, this is an amazing experience that I think everybody should see on the Met stage and in theaters if you're near a theater. Yeah, well, it's going to be one of those HD broadcasts, so a lot of people will get to see it. And yeah. you know, we touched upon the 60 Minutes piece you did and the story you tell about you know, Denise Graves and yes. being being in what a governor's school, I guess it yeah. was, and, and going to the opera and saying, oh, there's a Black person there. <laughs> and yep. she's the, like the best person on stage, you know. And the irony so, is Denise and, and the original mounting of of of, uh, of Champion, Denise played my mother uh, in, the sh in the show. And so the, and, and this version is going to be Latanya Moore, who's been both my sister on stage, yeah. my my neighbor on stage, and now she's going to play my mother on stage. So I'm like, me, me and Latanya have, have an amazing chemistry. So you, you have to come see me and her on stage together. So is there a part two of the story of your relationship with Denise Graves now that we haven't heard, like the update? Yeah. So one of the really cool moments of my career, something I'll never forget, you know, uh, after the, when the book is coming out. Um, the book had come out already um, that that next season I was performing kind of my first I was getting the opportunity to sing my first aria on the Met stage I was singing Coline and La Boheme in the famous uh, Zeffirelli production and I was singing I think it was in November December or something like this and uh, the book had uh, had done its rounds and had become pretty popular and so uh, at that at that time my the Governor's School for the Arts the high school that I went to in Virginia took a special field trip with all 30 something kids from the from the uh, uh, vo the classic voice program up to New York to see me make my basically uh, uh, um, uh, bigger than a Copper Mario role debut at yeah. the Met, <laughs> you know, singing the code aria. And so they, they were going to meet, they were meeting me in the green room where I met Denise uh, for my first opera. And a lot of these kids, this is their first ever opera and to see, you know, not only a, a face of color from their hometown, but see a person from their school who literally graduated from their school on the Met stage. And so I'm going backstage to meet my first group of government school kids, you know, uh, uh, um, in the green room. And I walk in 
And Lord behold, there's Denise Graves standing mm-hmm. amongst them. Like, and she, I had no idea that she was going to be there. And apparently someone told her that there was this book that had come out where the singer was talking about how like he, uh, how he, she inspired him to become an opera singer. And so she's like, I have to come up and see this kid. And so she, she came up to see my big role debut at the Met and she was, she was, and she, she hugged me and kissed me. I was in tears. I I, 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 I couldn't believe, I was like, I mean, there are pictures. I, and I, somehow the Met made this happen and it was, in the next season, I got to actually sing with her on stage. She sang, she sang Mariah and Porgy and Bess, and I sang Jake. So I actually got to sing with her on stage and actually like to not only, you know, f- more than 15 years ago, have her be the, the catalyst of my love for opera, then in have her see me in one of my biggest moments of my career, then a year, a year later, be able to get, be able to sing with her on the Met stage in an opera. It was and one of the biggest, most important production at the Met, uh, that poor game best, it will, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, honestly, pinch me, you know, pinch me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> she's, she set a high standard for um, stage presence and like physicality in her generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you're being asked to do this boxing role. Um, do you have like, are you like drinking a lot of uh, green? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I will tell you like, uh, you know, Speak, speaking of like family and COVID, like COVID was, you know, hit everybody really hard, you know, financially, mentally, physically. And uh, when COVID happened, I lost a lot of work, like like most singers. And I, uh, I, I didn't escape that. And, um, you know, I spent about six, seven months at home. And, uh, and, as, and I remember my, it, the first thing that hit me was kind of like depression. Like the fact that like I, as a, as a, my wife was six months pregnant with our second child, you know, uh, uh, she had to go on maternity, forced maternity leave because of COVID and the fears that pregnant women could be, you know, could uh, could face uh, extreme harm. And so basically, I have no job, you know, uh, um, at home with my, my 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 young child and my coming child. Uh, I had to pick myself up, and you know, she was my rock. And she told me if I, you know, if I can't be on stage singing, <clears throat> you know, you got to work on your voice and you got to work on your body and, and get yourself, get your, just start walking, take long walks. And so I, I ended up, you know, first I was walking like, you know, 4,000 steps and huffing and puffing and walking and, and coming home. And the next thing I know, like uh, after like two or three weeks of doing, I'm walking like 10,000 steps. I was like, man, it kind of feels good. And I'm getting, it feels like I'm airing out my, you know, letting go of my pain and my, and my sadness and kind of taking it, taking it out on these steps. And, and next thing I know, I'm walking like 20,000 steps. 25,000 steps and uh and I'm dropping weight just because I'm just being more active and and I felt more energetic to work on my voice find new find new avenues to perform I started you know doing a lot of stuff on zoom like other singers were doing and and getting involved with my community and I think uh in Austria where I, where I live at the moment and it was my, my my mind my body my voice everything changed that summer and I could have sat and 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 sort of like uh in my depression and and let that define me but I didn't and I'm happy that I had a support system uh um, you know my amazing wife and my and my kids and it was it was an awesome realization of you know I'm more than just my voice you know and it it was awesome well since you bring it up uh and we promised to talk about it you know you are somebody because I I I'm your friends on social media and I just see how often you are grateful for family um, and you have young children and your career is exploding right now. 
Um, how do you do it? What is your support system? Who is helping you and your wife? Uh, how does it inform what jobs you take? Just let it, let's talk about it so that people who might follow in your footsteps, follow in your footsteps might have a strategy. Yeah, I think it's so, um, one of the, so what's so important in this field is to realize no matter how amazing of a singer or a person you are, uh, you, you, it takes more than you to, to make, to create something. It takes a village, you know, and, and my story is, is, is a story of a village and, and family is not necessarily your blood. It's, it's more than that. And for me, the people that I hold dearest and closest to me are not necessarily blood related to me. Um, from my fourth grade elementary school teacher, uh, Mrs. Hughes, to my uh, to the head of uh, um, the government school for the arts when I was there, who I call my pops. He's he's one, he's the closest thing I had to a father. His name is Leon Hughes, the husband of Betty Hughes, the, my fourth grade elementary school teacher. These are two of my adopted parents, and they've been with they've been with me since I was eight years old. Even now at 30, 36, going on 37, they still call me every week to make sure that I'm like eating right and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm getting some sleep and I'm, and I'm behaving, uh, you know, behaving and doing my homework, <laughs> you know, they still check on me. And, you know, I was, I've been lucky enough, uh, even blessed enough that throughout my life, I've run into people who become my family from Robert Brown, the, the, my first voice teacher who taught me how to sing and taught me the love of opera and the essentials, who told first person to tell me that I would ever sing at the Met. And he never got to see me sing at the Met, but you know, to this day, uh, every success I have on stage, I look up and I know that, I know that he was a part of it. And you know, even now my family, you know, I think it's important that every singer has an inner circle. You know, and, and an inner circle is a, can be different with everybody, my inner circle is 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 consisting of educators and people whose word means more to me than any review or or, or any coach because you know they're people who have to know you not only at your voice but you as a person you know and of course you hope your manager or your <laughs> is part of that inner circle because they should be you know the, one of the closest people you talk to and my manager is is one of them you know uh, and it's important that you find people in your life that are not just music and my wife who had never her name is Irene or Irena if you're if you're German uh, um, who had never seen an opera in her life when I met her she, she had nothing to do with my field and it was actually a saving grace that she didn't <laughs> because there's only enough room for one diva in my relationship and that's me <laughs> and, and she's the most down-to-earth grounding human being on the planet and when i come home i'm not ryan speedo green the opera singer i'm ryan speedo green the dad and she hands me the baby and says change the diaper and i get to work and you don't know how grounding that is as a musician to come home to that well i want to get into some of the nitty-gritty uh because i and you don't have to name names but i just mm -hmm. want you to maybe describe some experiences where um a job or a company has been really great in understanding the needs of a young parent, or on the contrary, um, on the other hand, like a, a company or a, a gig that was like, wow, I can't ever do that gig again because they were just not accommodating at all. That was like a mess and a logistical <laughs> nightmare, you know? Yeah, I, mean, I will tell you like um, things in Europe are different than things in America. Like I, I, as much as, uh, I mean, I live in Europe, I live in Vienna, Austria. I sing with the Wiener Staatsoper for five seasons sing up 42 roles there, hundreds, hundreds of performances. And uh, it was an amazing experience. And I, I'll, it, it literally changed the trajectory of my career as much as many things did in the past. But at the same time, I realized as I'm living in Europe, how um, amazing the American uh, operatic system is. They 
there there's a there's a, a a comfort coming to the U.S. knowing that you know they'll accommodate for my family. Like I, I just recently did a production of my my first big production of Carmen with WNO Washington National Opera at the Kennedy Center, and I can I can't tell you how many times you know I came went there with my wife and my two kids and my mother in law, and they're kind of like you know we're traveling uh, 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 a group and. They were so accommodating to certain, you know, certain things that had to happen at home. Like if one of my kids was sick, or you know, if I needed to come a little uh, uh, later or earlier, or if I need to change rehearsal because uh, you know I need to make sure that my kids get this appointment because these appointments can only happen in America at this certain time. You know, they were so accommodating, and you know, I, I I'm not used to that. You know, in Europe, you you show up or you don't show up, and even now I'm here in Santa Fe, um, you know, performing here in one of those beautiful summer festivals of all time it's it's so stunning and the fact that like the you know they, they provide housing for families the fact that beautiful I actually, beautiful beautiful housing <laughs> you know and and the fact that i get to perform you know for some people perform for two and a half months you know three months and you get to literally have your kids and your family there's there's nothing more rewarding than coming home from work and being able to hug and kiss your, your family, you know? And, and to eat and, food from a kitchen yes, and from a restaurant. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Well, if your family can cook, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky my wife can cook, but I don't, I, and I can cook too, but some some families, I mean, they have to go out every night. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> so. Do you think it might have anything to do with Francesca Zambella? I don't know her, but the fact that she's in leadership uh, at Washington and like maybe there's just, like, it's like I, I talk about this all the time. Like maybe we need more women in the um, administrations uh, leader, leading these companies who understand that like, you know, if you wanna have the really good singers, the really good singers, they have families because, you know, they understand what's important, what's in life, you know, and you get that round complete artist because of their families. And I will tell on. you like the stability is different with everyone. I know some singers who do not need a partner to, to feel complete. And they, and they like, they have these like um, ridiculous, amazing careers with, with, living out of their suitcase basically and and it's absolutely possible every singer is different me i'm a i am i'm the kind of person like i thought when i married when i married my wife you know like oh man she's you know she's gonna need me and i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna like you know i can't go too far because she'll miss me too much because she's not a you know i'm not an opera singer you know she doesn't understand this lifestyle and the moment i uh i started traveling i realized that i'm the one missing her like she's 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 perfectly fine. She's like, oh oh, you're coming back in a month. Okay, I'll see you in a month. And I'm like, baby, no, I'm gonna miss you so much. It's been like six hours. And, and like, I I literally I married the perfect woman for me. And and I think uh for me that's that's what I needed someone strong and 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 stable. And uh she's literally a pillar of of protection for me, um from the world. And uh. It's the irony is like you know this two hundred seventy pound six and four black guy who's like being protected by this you know much much smaller petite <laughs> woman. So it, it's it's uh, I I'm literally a, a softie and, and and that I'm glad I have her, and and the thing is like you know Francesca she she has a wife and a, and a kid and she understands she's a parent, and you know as much as opera is an elitist I can't it is an elitist art form that has hundreds of years behind it hundreds of years of history of pain, blood, sweat, and tears. You know, it is also a, a field of emotions. Like we, we put our emotions on that stage. We give pieces of ourselves to the audience. Every, if, if we're doing our job right, we're giving pieces of ourselves every night, whether it be in a comedy or, or in a drama. 
And I, when you do that, when you put yourself out like that, you, you need to have something or people supporting you, not only on the stage, but off the stage, you know? And I think that's why it's important uh, as administrators here, you know, David Lomelli with his wife and kids, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, the Henry Pickett, like, you know, like all the people involved here at Santa Fe, Francesca Zambella, you know, the people at the Met, you know, it's, it's so important to have people on your staff and your administration who understand family and stability. Well, we know that we we can hear you uh, in Champion uh, next spring. Mm -hmm. uh, anything else that we can look forward to before before Champion? I know yes. Gonna finish up this Basilio run. Yeah, so I'm finishing up the Basilio run, and then after that, I'm heading to Europe for for a couple for a, I'm closing the BBC Proms, uh, doing the B9, and then I'm going to Peoria, uh, Illinois, to do a B9 there, and then I'm going to be spending about two and a half months at WNO. Uh, uh, performing in a new production of Electra um, as a rest, and then also singing simultaneously singing uh, Fernando and Il Trovatore. So you, you, if you come there to, to see me in one of those shows at Washington National Opera, you can just stay an extra night and see me in, in the next one the yeah. next night. <laughs> will, will this be your first arrest? Uh, this will be my first arrest, yes. I, oh, wow. I, I, I love it. And, uh, um, and then after that, I'll be making uh, my role debut singing Curvenal and, uh, and Tristan with uh, L.A. Phil and Dudamel, and then going to the Bastille in Paris to do uh, a production of Tristan uh, as Curvenal again with Dudamel conducting. And after that, I will be doing uh, the Mazorsky Songs and Dances of Death with the Met Orchestra at Carnegie Hall. And after that, I'll also, that same month, I'll be doing a commission piece uh, with the New York Phil um, for Black History Month. And then after that will be the big, my first lead role, first title role of my career, will be at the Metropolitan Opera singing uh, Young Emile in Champion. This uh, commission with the New York Phil, who's the composer? So the 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 composer, the, you know, ask me all these questions. I, I um, yeah. <laughs> it, it's still in the works. It's still in the works. Okay. But uh, um, I'm uh, Courtney Bryan is the composer. Okay. Um, and uh, the libretto, Tazel Thompson is going to be doing the libretto. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And it's basically going to be a piece. Uh, um, the I'm going to be I'm going to come I'm going to be going to uh, Philly to be because I think she's a resident at uh, a, a resident uh, composer, um, with the Philadelphia uh, Symphony. Is it Philadelphia Symphony? Yes, Philadelphia, Philadelphia Orchestra. Philadelphia, sorry, Philadelphia Orchestra. I apologize. Yeah, yeah Philadelphia Orchestra. She's a resident uh, composer. So um, I'm going to be going up with, to there in November uh, to be working with her, like, like just vocally and looking at some text. But she's going to be the thematic. It's, the, it's basically centerpiecing. It's a centerpiece for the thematic focus of the season where they're explosion, exploring the notion of liberation and social justice. So um, I'm not sure exactly what she, what, uh, um, Libretto, what 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 Tassel is going to use as inspiration, like what mm -hmm. text he's going to be using, but it's going to be performed with uh, William Grant Still's Symphony Number no. Two, um, mm -hmm. and Adolphus uh, Hellstork's Done Made My Vow. So I'll, um, it's two orchestral pieces, and I'll be the vocal piece in that in that program. So we didn't talk about it, and maybe uh, th this is not a rich topic for you, but um, you know we're coming out of the pandemic, and you know there was this social uprising in the meantime and uh you know the black opera alliance sort of gained steam and just i feel like all the arts organizations are just taking a look at themselves and maybe being more intentional even if it's performative they're being more intentional and i felt like during this time i didn't hear from you like and like, i'm not saying that you weren't out there saying stuff but i feel like there were some artists that were very very vocal um is it 
because you're working in Austria and you've got your work and you've got your family, you don't need to contribute to that conversation or is that private for you or uh, are you just so grateful because of your path to where you are now that you don't want to you know stir the pot you know I don't no, know I mean, how to... I mean I think this is a very 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 touchy subject and I think everybody's uh voice is yeah. is heard differently and maybe some people are, are vocal on social media but mm -hmm. they uh maybe uh th that voice that social media is great to see but the voices that maybe don't happen on social media that happen to the people that can actually make changes is maybe equally as important. And I think uh, um, for me, like I'm social, first of all, anybody who knows me knows how much inclusion and diversity is important to me. And when it doesn't happen, when I'm around and when I see that it's in, in being tested or being not, not being uh, implemented, I say something. And in any opera company or administrator that knows me personally knows how I always bring that up. And so for me, I don't need to, uh, you know, my social media is, is for my personal use and the purpose of me expressing when I want to say something happy and when I, wish to, when I say something that's upsetting or something that displeases me, you'll know as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, but for me, like uh, the, my operatic voice is done in person. I don't need to uh, put it on social media for people to hear me. Anybody who knows me and talks to me and has conversations with me, they hear, these, they hear how I feel about things. So Good. if you if you if you have questions about me personally about how I feel about certain subject matters, yeah. you, you you ask me now. I'll tell you how I feel about them. No, no, I, I don't <laughs> need to. I just wanted to put that out there because yeah. I do think that there are people out there who are so angry about everything, yeah. and they're always calling out people. And there's like this purity test, and um, I can I can name an example. I won't of somebody who says, "Oh, well, that person has their job, so they don't need to." Yeah. Uh, you know, to stir the pot, you know, so they're fine and they're working within the patriarchal uh, system, you know, they, they figured it out. So why would they, you know, why would they call attention to injustices? But I think I it's also, important for every art. I think it's maybe I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think it's very no. important for every artist to express themselves the way they want to express themselves, but also know that social media, once you put it out there, you like, it's there forever. Even if you take yeah. it off, someone's probably taking a screenshot. So if you have something, per, if make things, I would be wary of making things personal and being more me being uh, 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 and also making generalizations because you never know what's happening behind the scenes. And and for instance, I will I will say for an example, I posted something about uh, Terrence Blanchard and how amazing I, uh, you know how excited I was to be a part of his uh, second production at the Met, which is a big freaking deal for uh, uh, an African American composer or even an American composer to have mm -hmm. a, 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 an opera of theirs done. Us the next year after their premiere, which I mean, Nico Muli didn't have that, you know, yeah. like, uh, you know, like, uh, it, it, like, they it's a huge deal. And not only that he's African American, but he's American. This is an American composer. Before he's even African American, he's American. And that to me matters. And so I posted this and uh, I had someone write a comment about how like, you know, that uh, he was uh, uh, like an Uncle Tom type of thing. Uh, um, and, and I was like, do you real? First of all, as this person who wrote this, I had to write them, and I was like, "Do you actually know that there's another African American composer having their opera performed next season? You ever heard of this opera called Malcolm X? That's not <laughs> that's not composed by Terrence Blanchard. That's also being performed at 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 the Met next season. And so I have, you know, before you go out there and put yourself yeah. on the chopping block, because again, as much as the internet is 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 and social media is supportive, it'll also tear you down." In the moment with people yeah. turning you in a second. And it's important that, you know, before you put yourself out there 
to be embarrassed or have your career in jeopardy, make sure you're rightfully informed and, and educated on the subject matter you're about to put out there. Yeah. Now there are people who just want to burn it all down. And, yeah. And, and it's, uh, it's not I've, had, I've had those moments too, yeah. trust me. But I also love it so much that I know that the, the work from the inside is very important. Yeah. And I've been educated so in so many ways on so many different uh, uh, um, experiences of people in the business through social media, things I would have never known, the, the, the gay experience, the bi experience, the Asian experience, you know, the white experience. I don't know these things. Only experiences I know are myself and, 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 and my, you know, my people's, the, the only experiences that I know, because that's the experiences that I'm living. And so I never pretend to understand someone else's experiences. And so I, I'm, 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 I love the fact that social media allows me a, a, a basically a window into the lives and experiences of others. And I, and I accept it and I let it soak in before I make a judgment. And I think that's also important. Like, you know, as much as we like to give, get, you know, uh, sorry, uh, uh, show people how we feel, it's also important to, to absorb other people's experiences. And I think that's something that maybe can be left, uh, can be forgotten. That needs to be also done, and I think as a as a musician, opera is the most open minded art form. It's been it's been the most accepting art form secretly for so long. You know where many composers and singers got to be their actual selves in the operatic world, you know behind doors uh, and on stage. But now it is with with the world being the way it is now, we have people allowed to be themselves everywhere. And I think we have to remember how opera should be held sacred and 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 cherished for what it was for so many people for so long. Well, I would love to leave um, this conversation with just remember recalling the young man you used to be uh, when you were in high school and when you were in governor's school. And can you name the maybe an experience uh, or the type of experience that is so different than what you thought your life was going to be. I mean, I am just thinking about like singing Belshazzar's Feast or like singing Gurnaval, you know, these are things that are just so, would your mind be able even to comprehend if that was going to be something you could do? I will tell you, I will tell you my, if you, if you, if you talk to 14 year old Ryan Speedo Green, you know, mm -hmm. when I, after, after I saw my first opera at the Met, my first opera, literally was at the Met and I'm, and I'm, I'm leaving there after seeing Denise Grace perform the title of Carmen on the Met stage thinking like, this is, this is the greatest experience I've ever had outside of like, you know, like, like, like watching your first Disney movie or see, you know, see you know, that kind of like experience. And, and I literally thought this was like the, the Disney world of, 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 of opera, of, 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 of performance. And I, I left the Met and I told my, my voice teacher, Robert Brown, I know what I want to do with my life. I want to sing at the Met. And I don't want to sing opera. I want to sing at the Metropolitan Opera because this to me was what opera was as a 14-year-old, as a 15-year-old pursuing this art form. And in my mind, I thought, you know, if someday I could graduate college, graduate grad school, do a young artist program, and then be able to audition for the Met Chorus and sing on that stage and just be a part of a show on the Met my life would be complete. I would have made it. And if the fact that, you know, <laughs> uh, literally, uh, I don't know, how many years is that? Nine years later, uh, um, I'm making my debut singing on the Met stage by myself in, a, in the Met competition with the Met Orchestra singing two arias I, at 24 years old. I, 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 there was no, I didn't think there was any more I could do. I, I thought that was the pinnacle. And, and to have my story be told, to have 
traveled the world, sung at some of the greatest opera houses in the world, met some of the stars that I've idolized throughout my childhood and my adulthood and be able to perform with them on these stages. I'm just thankful every day that I get to wake up and I get to be a part of this history and this, and this grandeur and this field, which has cr created me as a man and created me as a father and created me, you know, as, as, as a musician. I'm so blessed and I'm so thankful. And thank you for having me. That was Ryan Speedo Green singing Mephistopheles' Golden Calf aria for Austin Opera last spring. Thanks again to the PR team at Santa Fe Opera for giving us access to Speedo. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. Time to wrap the show up for this week. Just yours truly. My good call is that we are in the sweet spot of sports right now. We are into the NBA Finals. We are into the Stanley Cup Final. Baseball is finally getting into its groove. The French Open is happening. This is such a fabulous time to watch sports. Get back to me in August when nothing is going on or even after the... Major League Baseball All-Star Game, which is notoriously dull. But right now, sit back, relax, and enjoy it. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. You're going to click follow. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, all you have to do is just hit that plus sign. You can send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Get the OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. And, of course, you can also donate to the OBS on our webpage. Just look for operaboxscore.com slash donate. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is Weston Williams. The other members of our beloved team, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue about the conversation about opera wherever you are as we kick off the month of June. We are back on June 8th with an all-new show. Join us. <laughs>